You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me this week is... Paul Doroshenko. Hello. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> well, last week you kind of hosted because you had me by telephone. Yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed doing that. That was Sitting here fun. all alone. Didn't yeah. have to worry about your your glare when I say something wrong or stupid or I keep talking. Well, sometimes it's nice to wrap you up, give you the wrap-up signal. Yeah, well, it's probably useful, I suppose. In any event, last week I probably went on too long. You know, that's fine. Um, the important thing is this week you had a very interesting driving law adjacent experience. I thought we'd start. Are, Are you, you talking sh- about my my Coke can incident? Yes. Yeah, I had a, uh, I parked my car, my truck, and uh, left it and came back after hours in the sun. And the can of Coke that I had left there for myself exploded. It was a sealed can in the truck, and this is in Vancouver. We're not talking Arizona or something like that. And it blew up um, right there in the cup holder and uh, blew the lid off and blew half a can of Coke all over the inside of my truck. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can clean that up. I like to drink Coke. It's probably not going to stop me from drinking Coke. But that's kind of a dangerous thing. I mean, it's like a big sharp shards. Yeah, uh, when it blew apart and, and coke everywhere. Yeah. And if you got in your car and it was a hot car and you turned your air conditioner on and it decided to blow up five minutes into driving or something like that, you could have a big problem. Coke should have a warning on the cans if that's something that can actually happen. Absolutely. They and should have a warning. A I've never, can. there's no, I've never seen a warning of that sort. I've never seen anything, you know, to suggest that. I've Kyle's looking at her diet Coke in my life. Um, can in front of her. And uh, there's nothing that would, you know, I always just assume that it would be safe at, uh, you know, whatever 25 degrees it got to in Vancouver today or 23 degrees. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, maybe you'll share some photos. You took photos, I assume. I got two photos. Yeah. All right. We'll share some on Twitter. Everyone wants to see, I'm sure. Well, it's a big mess. Anyway, lots of cleanup coming. Fair enough. Very soon. Okay. But to move on to the more important and more exciting world of driving law, not driving law adjacent, I wanted to talk to you. Well, that wasn't law yet. I mean. Well, Coca-Cola has some liability. Coca-Cola's got some explaining to do. I said the word liability, therefore it's law. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> My very tenuous law connection. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's certainly a cause of action. Yes. Coca-Cola, if you're listening, if you listen to this podcast. Civil Resolution Tribunal. I'm sure Coca-Cola does not. And they can't have a lawyer. Who's going to come? Oh, yeah. I, they can't have a lawyer. We just have to be, I guess, the Coca-Cola delivery guy. <laughs> Actually, that's tempting to do, just to take it in, pay somebody else to do the cleanup rather than doing it myself and spending an hour. I mean, I, I'm not going to be able to get it an all cleaned up because well, it's on the seat and it's on the dash. It's on the window. It's going to be a real you pain. You need a specialist. Yeah. 
I am that specialist. Take it to the place I got my car detailed before I drove Beverly McLaughlin in the car. Yeah, I that, just said that so I could mention that. That uh, guy did a pretty good job. <laughs> yes, we were, uh, We well, I took your car in, but no, he did I a fairly good job detailing it. Job. Yeah, they did do a good job. You know, if you're going to drive Beverly McLaughlin in your car, you have to get it You got to get it detailed. Especially I when mean, you have a hairy dog. She's probably accustomed to driving in like those big black uh, Chevy Suburbans and Cadillac Escalade type things, I'm sure. So, yeah, getting the dog hair out of your car was a problem. But she was good with the dog hair, apparently. Yeah, that's what she said. She said, oh, you know, I have a dog. I'm a dog lover. And I was like, oh, well, okay, <laughs> $200 <no> for nothing. <laughs> Could have just let her sit in Wrigley's hairy, dirty mess. Sprayed some Febreze in there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Here's a towel. <laughs> My dog won't sit on it, but you can. <laughs> can you imagine? Uh, okay, no. She I... was lovely and humble, but I don't think that would have gone over yeah, well. Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okay, back on track. Uh, should we start with the bad news, the medium news, or the good news? Um, we, let's end with good news this week. Okay, well then let's start with the bad and we'll make a sandwich. Okay. It's like an open-face sandwich, like a, a, a driving lawn news melt. So the medium will be in the middle. Okay, go ahead. So. I thought the good would be in the middle in that circumstance, but in any event, I'm picturing the sandwich I like differently the than you are. On the top. Okay, well, let's pick it up. Let's get onto it. Okay. Bad. What's the bad? The bad is ICBC has announced finally, as of Friday last week, which was a shame because it was the the day after we record the podcast, and therefore not something we could talk about. Um, how they're going to use your driving record to affect your insurance rates. Yeah, and uh, they, they, you know, they told us a long time ago that they were going to start doing this. Like November last year. Where was it? October last year. We were, you and I what, went to a David Eby uh, was event with David at, Eby speaking yeah, at the Chamber of Victoria, Commerce in Chamber Victoria. Commerce. And he said that they were doing that. And that was the first I had heard of it. And then now they've announced that it starts as of September 1st this year, going mm -hmm. back to... June 10th. June 10th offenses, so Which already... Which is crazy that they gave, like, they didn't tell the date up until last week, which meant, and June 10th was the beginning of this week, which meant people had basically Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which wouldn't be possible, to pay... Not any, drive badly? <laughs> no, to pay any outstanding tickets that they feared might affect their insurance rates because it was when the conviction was registered on the account. So if you dispute a ticket... And then you decide before your court date to uh, pay your ticket and to, you know, to be found guilty of it by doing so. The conviction is entered on the date you pay the ticket, not on the date the incident happened. Yeah, um, but I mean, just don't drive bad, right? But what about all the people who have outstanding tickets that are in dispute that haven't had their court dates yet? It goes by the conviction date? It goes by the conviction date. Oh, okay. So if you paid your ticket before the thing that you wouldn't have to worry about it affecting your insurance. Yeah. Or if you have a criminal case that you are disposing of because a criminal conviction is one of the things that's going to automatically result in the insurance rate increases. If you have a criminal conviction that you're disposing of... You need more warning than a Friday so that you can call it ahead and get it done before the conviction is going to affect you. Are you really that concerned about whether or not it's going to affect your insurance rates? 
Well, I'm not because I don't have any criminal convictions for driving, but I'm concerned about notice. You know, people make decisions. Lots of our clients, put yourself in your client's shoes. People make decisions about whether or not they're going to plead guilty and and when they're going to do it based on their life circumstances. You know, they may need time to have enough money to pay their fine or they may need to do it at a certain point in time because they need their driver's license up until a certain point because they need to take their kids to hockey practice or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and affecting your insurance is going to be one of the things that has a bearing on that. And that you don't have enough notice to factor that into your decision-making about the timing of your guilty plea, to me, seems unfair. To me, they notified everybody when they said they were going to do this they a year ago, almost, or 10 months ago, whatever. effective conviction it, date. Yeah, but I just assumed, and I think probably most people assumed that it was going to be everything on your driving record, which would have, I mean, I think that would have been just fair and something they could have done and... and Oh, Why not? no, Paul, you don't think that would have been fair because I seem to recall you and I discussing on the podcast way back when this was announced that it wouldn't be fair to consider things in the past and that may give rise to a charter violation because all of the guilty pleas could be invalidated on the basis of the fact that people didn't have notice of the consequences they were facing and may not be free, voluntary and informed. I argued that. I probably <clears throat> argued it. And I you think probably maybe agreed, you argued that. But I think you agreed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're the you're, you're, you're the, you're the person who sells the uh, sells the uh, freezer to the Inuit. I mean, yeah. Yeah, they live in houses. They need freezers. I okay. So the hundred year old <laughs> Inuit from a hundred years ago. I sell honey to the bees. Exactly. No, um, no. I I just I think it's unfair. I think the lack of notice is unfair to people. The other thing that concerns me is what they're treating as sufficient to trigger an insurance rate increase. I don't know. What are they going to consider that's sufficient? I thought it was just like any collision. No, no, this isn't about collisions. This is about convictions. Yeah, I know that. So then why but, are you saying any collision? Well, they told us what they're going to, what convictions. I mean, I assumed it was going to be like more than two convictions. No. Like five demerits and up or something. One cell phone ticket? Yeah, Okay. But they're, they're harsh on cell phone tickets. And I mean, I, I don't agree with it, but. One excessive speeding conviction. I can see that. It's only three demerits, but, you know, it's excessive speeding. They've deemed it a high risk. It's 40 kilometers an hour over. Fair enough. One alcohol-related incident. And that could be 12-hour prohibition, 24-hour prohibition, 3-day prohibition, that or 90-day prohibition. bullshit. It is bullshit. There's no review process for a 12-hour. That's bullshit. You can't That's, dispute it. Yeah, that is bullshit. Like, what, are we going to suddenly see the, an influx of judicial reviews of 24 hours because end drivers don't want to pay higher insurance? 12-hour driving prohibitions. Yeah. Absolutely. And we should. Yeah. You have to get a 12-hour driving prohibition. You have to judicially review it And you're an end driver. Now. You better judicially review it because otherwise your insurance is going up. Never mind that it already triggers a driving prohibition. Exactly. Yeah, it's insane. Um, and the 24-hour is just as bad because the review process is barely a review process it doesn't really go into the facts of the case no it's like whether or not you were eligible to ask for a test of your blood alcohol concentration and then asked for one and then didn't get one yeah we've won enough of those though yeah <laughs> but you have to know that you're eligible to ask for it no i know um although i was 
heartened to hear an officer actually read the full 24-hour script to somebody in a video I was watching for one of my criminal files recently. Oh, good for you. Including the, you have a right to request a test of your blood alcohol concentration, blah, 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 blah. I've watched hundreds of those videos and never seen a police officer explain right? it to somebody. Yeah. It <laughs> never, was... ever, ever, ever. I my mean, entire career, I've never seen it. It was perhaps the only thing the officer did that complied correctly with the <laughs> complied law. with their obligations in an impaired from driving their, investigation. From there forward, there was such a lack of regard for the charter that it was it broke my heart. But you know, that there was that one thing. So it was redeeming. Redeemed everything. Mm. The, the, the twenty four mm-hmm. two analysis. <laughs> well he did the gave the twenty four hour driving prohibition correctly, so twenty four, twenty four Yeah. <laughs> it's right there in the legislation. Yeah. No accident. Yeah. Um <laughs> Okay, but the cell phone thing is stupid too, and here's why. And I'm not going to tell you something you don't already know, but perhaps something you haven't already thought about. Think about the circumstances in which you can get a cell phone conviction, and this will actually lead into the medium news. You can get a cell phone conviction if you are a Class 7 driver, so you have your N, and you've got your phone mounted to your dash, connected via your Bluetooth, playing music through the speakers of your car. You're not using it to make calls or text or as a GPS. You're just trying to listen to some Taylor Swift. Well, that's your first problem. Yes. You're using it. You're not allowed to be using it. And you're a class seven driver. But as a class seven driver, you can take one of those old eight track briefcases, open it up, put the eight track in your eight track player. You can use a cassette. You can use a CD. Absolutely. Or you can adjust the radio knobs. Which is I used to be just... able to like repair a cassette deck with a big pen. Yeah. While all, driving with my knees. All of that is just as dangerous. In fact, more dangerous because you're actually taking your hands off the wheel. Oh, look, the law is the law. The law is the law. They wrote a law. They don't want it's people stupid. who have uh, who are starting out driving to connect their cell phone with driving. Uh, and so they've made it so that you can't use it in any circumstance whatsoever Do except not... an emergency. So you're allowed to have it in your bag to pull it out. To phone in if, you know, you're being chased by somebody with an axe. But otherwise, no. I don't know. It's ridiculous. First of all, you're not going to keep people who are now learning how to drive. Let them disassociate their cell phone from anything. Those people are so, at that age, so plugged into their electronic devices. Part of the, the culture now wired to their head. Says me and you with our phones directly in front of us. My phone's only here just as a, because I, in case of emergency, something goes wrong. <laughs> Someone tweets at you. Exactly. <laughs> um, so that's ridiculous to me. You can get a cell phone ticket for having your phone loose in your cup holder, but using it as your GPS while it's loose. So it's okay to have it loose and not using it, but you loose and having it, you know, say on speakerphone, turn right on Granville Street is against the law. And but you if get, it's fixed in your cup holder? If it's loose in the cup holder and you're getting directions from it, you're in violation of the law. If it's just loose in your cup holder and nothing's happening with it, you're not in violation. Well, of there's the a lot law. of people in violation of the law then. Yes. And these are all people who are at risk of having an increase in their insurance just because they don't have a freaking mount in their car. Well, go buy a mount. I, don't, I, I, I think there's limits to how sympathetic people are going to be. I mean, think about this. We've had years now 
where you have not been permitted to use your cell phone yeah, while that. driving. I get We've that. had years now where there have been, you know, this has been in the media from time to time and people are caught and there's debate about the police doing it. And, and everybody, any driver in British Columbia has seen enforcement. I mean, every one of us has seen people getting pulled over for cell phone offenses. So everybody's been fairly warned. I mean, I'll tell you, most of the time when I see people getting pulled over for a cell phone offense, and most of the time when I see people using their fucking cell phones, you know, you're looking at them and they should know better. The other day... Yeah, except I literally just told you about the GPS on speakerphone in the cup holder and you didn't know. But I don't do that. That's not the point. The well, point is... You didn't think it was illegal. The other day, I, there was a, a, um, a woman in a new Audi, white Audi SUV. I wrote the license plate number down. I was so angry. And she was driving on 16th, and she stopped two or three car lengths behind. And I watched all the way she was driving from 16th from Arbutus to, uh, to uh, Granville Street. And she didn't even look up. And then she stopped two car lengths behind, and she still didn't look up. And she drove the whole way, not looking up all the entire time on her cell phone. I think you've identified our ridiculous driver of the week. That was the ridiculous driver of the week. And I, I, I was so angry about it. Anyway, it was a brand new Audi SUV, white. Um, and she was uh, blonde and probably in her uh, mid to late 30s. And I have the license plate number written down in the car. I could go run down and get it, except it's probably covered with Coke. <laughs> um, no, I, I appreciate that people like that obviously should pay more for their insurance. But I don't think... You know, the end driver who's mistaken and thinks they can listen to music. And you know how many people we talk to a week who are end drivers who think, oh, I'm allowed to use it for GPS. So I'm allowed to use it for music. It's not a phone when it's doing that. Um, you know, I don't think that those people should be hit with the most heavy-handed consequences that ICBC is giving. Now, the other thing that they're doing is two, quote-unquote, low-risk offenses which includes a seatbelt conviction. So change lane over solid line Yep. and seatbelt conviction. And speeding, just regular speed. But seatbelt, keep your speed. I get speed. speeding. You keep get two you. speeding tickets. Well, okay, yeah, that's a lot of speeding tickets. Okay, but change lanes over solid line and speeding. And yeah. You could get that in two offenses. You could get that in one stop, and you could have your, <clears> not have your seatbelt on, too. You know, you can get a seatbelt ticket in a parking lot because you pull out of your parking stall and you're putting your seatbelt on as you're exiting the parking lot, which lots of people do, and lots of police officers ticket for it. And I haven't seen you get many two people of those. with that. Yeah. All right, I get I talk to a lot of cops who issue those tickets, and <sighs> you get two of those, and all of a sudden, now you're paying increased insurance. But that's ridiculous because the cell uh, the seatbelt offenses have no bearing on public safety or your likelihood to be in or cause an accident. Well, I, I mean, I think it just shows carelessness, but you're allowed to have to drive without your seatbelt on if you're backing up. Um, and a lot of people are backing up and then they go to start driving and then they're pulling their seatbelt on. Well, there's also the um, ongoing that's debate. That's hardly a, a dangerous thing. There's also the ongoing debate with taxi drivers about whether or not they can wear their seatbelts. And what speed they should be able to drive. And the... Anyway, I don't think that something that doesn't have any bearing on your safety on the road should affect your insurance rates. And if ICBC's, you know, 
ticked off, and we never get this data because they won't release it, but if they're paying out a ton of claims to people who are more injured because they weren't wearing their seatbelt, then they should make wearing your seatbelt part of your insurance contract so that if you're not wearing your seatbelt in a circumstance in which you're legally obligated to do it, they can breach you or partially deny coverage. I mean, probably partially deny coverage as it is. Well, then it's not something that needs to be considered in increasing somebody's insurance rates, which is supposed to be based on their risk of causing a collision. That's how this was sold to the public, and to put it on a seatbelt is absurd. I think the idea is to pick offenses, and if you're showing a disregard for your obligations as a driver, and you're doing that regularly, you probably are one of those people who puts the rest of us at risk and likely has more collisions. So I think that is the rationale. Speaking of cell phones and circumstances in which you can get a cell phone ticket when you're doing nothing wrong, Mr. Tannhauser is an individual who got a cell phone ticket while driving with an immobilizer app installed on his phone. So this is an app that prevents you from using your phone while you're in your vehicle. It disables the phone completely, so you can't do anything with it. He got issued the ticket on the basis of um, having the phone, even though it was immobilized, and the court dismissed his conviction, um, or dismissed his ticket rather, acquitted him, um, on the basis that the traffic court level of due diligence, arguing that um, that there wasn't a, an intention to violate <clears throat> the law and he was trying to comply with it and his um, compliance was imperfect, but he was doing everything he could to comply, so he was duly diligent and had that defense. Was this the fellow who was on the island? Um, yeah. And it was, uh, okay, I remember this case. I yeah, remember talking to Justice Gordon. I remember talking to the police officers who yeah. uh, prosecuted it. So after that, the Crown appealed, um, and on appeal, his acquittal was upheld. But on appeal, the judge upheld the acquittal for different reasons, finding that it didn't fall within the definition of use in the Motor Vehicle Act because it was no longer an electronic device because when it's immobilized, it's not capable of transmitting data. Yeah, I don't think that was the... Um the way that the uh, judicial justice and traffic court looked at it, he was more interested in the fact that it was, it was like, I think it was non-functional at that time, and he had just moved it for some reason to get some papers or something. Yeah. So he, um, that was the reason for the acquittal. Uh, but he had run this argument that he had this immobilizing software in there, and that was still accepted as a fact, I guess, at that level of court. And then ultimately it ends up going to... Um, to the appeal at BC Supreme Court and the judge comes to the conclusion that it's not used because it's immobilized, is that right? Yeah, and because it can't fall within the definition of electronic device because in order for something to be an electronic device, one of the features that defines it as such in the act is that it has to be capable of transmitting data. And at the point in time that he touched the device, it wasn't capable of transmitting, processing, or computing data because it had been immobilized. Well, Except for the immobilizer. The problem with that is the uh, is that the intention was to um, the intention of the legislation was complete disassociation of your device there in your hand, uh, and the issue that arises is the impossibility of 
prosecuting people when anyone can come along and say I had an immobilizing device on my phone and therefore I can't get this ticket and I you know should be acquitted of it and they can always download the app at some later date come to court and you know show their phone maybe their phone has to go into evidence at that point um, but um, claim that they've got that so I think it opens up a can of worms for uh, the prosecution in these cases because people are just going to come along and do that and I think that was the reason that it wasn't dealt with that way by the JJP. And I think they've got a problem when it goes to a higher level of court. Well, this is the thing. The Crown has now sought leave to appeal that conviction at the Court of Appeal level. So when Crown, we talked about this a little last week as well, um, when the Crown wants to appeal something, they can't just appeal anything. Um, they can only appeal on a question of law. So they had to persuade the Court of Appeal that it was a question of law and because it was a Crown appeal from an acquittal that was upheld um, at the BC Supreme Court, they had to seek leave to appeal. So they had to persuade the Court of Appeal, not just that they were appealing on a question of law, but also that there was like a legitimate issue that needed to be decided by the court and that their appeal had a reasonable prospect of success before the Court of Appeal was going to allow them to bring it. Oh, they have a reasonable process, prospect of success. Well, this is the thing. At our Court of Appeal, they have a reasonable prospect of success. And this is the thing that gets me about the, the insurance changes. You know, you see this case, Mr. Tannhauser not represented at the leave to appeal application, meaning likely not participating in the litigation at all, his side not being heard, the court not getting the benefit of an interpretation of the law from that side uh, of things. Um, perhaps uh, we can intervene, Acumen Law Corporation as interveners. Yeah, I don't think it works quite that way. Anyway. Um, well, I'll try. It does, <laughs> but if you want to intervene on a case, it's going to lose because he'll lose at the Court of Appeal. Doesn't matter. At least then, some at least you know some sensible interpretation of the law might be. If you're acquitted, if you're acquitted at a lower level of court in British Columbia, and it's appealed to the Court of Appeal, there's a substantial, substantive chance that it'll be upheld at the Court of that your acquittal will be overturned. I mean, maybe this cell phone case will go to the Supreme Court of Canada. Not likely. Okay, but the point is that this is a case where somebody again was doing everything they could to comply with the law, had some non-compliance uh, non related reason for touching the phone, just moving it, and w was taking reasonable steps, including steps that ICBC is pilot testing in vehicles right now. They stopped pilot testing. They were pilot yeah. testing and they stopped pilot testing a long time ago because they realized exactly the problem that the, they were pilot testing it for the possibility of you getting a, a discount on your insurance if you had an immobilizing device in your phone. And they realized people just have to show the immobilizing device and then take it out or have two cell phones to get the discount. And it makes sense to have two cell phones in order to get the discount um, because the amount of money that you would save in the discount is cheaper than getting a second cell phone plan that you can show them that's got an immobilizer. So they decided to back away from that. And again, it's an issue of evidence. It's an issue of evidence. And it's the um, impossible task that it sets. The intention of the legislation was to stop people from having their phone anywhere near them where they could pick it up and try and use it. 
and it wasn't intended to make it impossible for the police to prosecute these cases. But it also wasn't intended to make it impossible for people to comply with the law by prohibiting innocent conduct. All you have to do is make sure that your phone is in is fixed, is fixed in your vehicle. That's Except if all you're you an end driver. Do. Well, and then put it in your bag. I just, I think that the law is far too heavy-handed and far too broad, and I think this Tannhauser case was a good example of a way that people could comply with the law and that people could, could you know, comply with the spirit of the law while still having their phone there. Well, I'm predicting the Court of Appeal decision right now. Oh, I know. And I'm I with predict you the Court the of Appeal is going to uh, is going to overturn it and make it a conviction and send it back for sentencing. Um, and if it was appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada, two thirds of the cases that are make it from the Court of Appeal in British Columbia to the Supreme Court of Canada are overturned by the Supreme Court of Canada. But I don't think this one necessarily would be. <laughs> cases <laughs> that should have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada, but didn't cell phone tickets. Yeah, I yeah, don't think that gonna one's going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. Although we did have a, uh, a traffic ticket case go to the Supreme Court of Canada lately. I don't want to talk about it because I'm going to try and invite counsel on, female counsel here from BC, that's, argued it. So. That's fine. Um, next topic, Kyla. Next topic, ending with the good news. Good news for people who have their ends and are facing alcohol-related convictions on their driving records. Yes. So. Summary, please. Uh, well, you, a little while ago, argued a case in Victoria. I think this may have been when you were talking to the officers about the Tannhauser case. I was talking to them about the Tannhauser case that day, yeah. Yeah. Um, this was a case involving an individual who was stopped in the early morning hours in downtown Vancouver. He had... Several passengers in his vehicle who... Downtown Vancouver? Victoria, sorry. Downtown Victoria had several passengers in his vehicle, all of whom had been consuming alcohol, and uh, he did not have his end sign up. And he was ticketed for having no end sign, having too many passengers. And then the officer also conducted an approved screening device test after smelling liquor on your client's breath, he failed the, no, he didn't fail the ASD. He no. got like a warn. He got some like alcohol, some alcohol. It was less than yeah. a warn. Less than a warn. He got some alcohol. And so the officer, on the basis of that, gave him a drive contrary to restriction ticket. Carries three points for having alcohol in his body. Now, you did the trial. And I did it well. Yes. And you argued one thing, really, at the trial. Because there was only one thing to argue, as far as I was concerned. Well, yeah, I mean, everything else was, you know, he had too many passengers and he had no end, so what can you do? Well, I, I don't think they proceeded on the passengers. I think they no, just... No, they did. They proceeded on... They didn't proceed on everything. Yeah, they proceeded on the passengers. You oh, entered a plea on the on the end, and, or invited a conviction on the end, I believe. And well, it was, I was dead on the end. Yeah, yeah. there was no end. <laughs> What, what magical defense could you come up with? Um, the too many passengers you did, I think, argue that the officer hadn't, like, checked their ages. But, of course, the law says the burden is on the person who I know. is claiming the exception. We but weren't, we weren't. You made your valiant pitch. We didn't have much there. No. Um, but on the, uh, on the liquor, the drive contrary restriction, alcohol in the body ticket. Which was my main concern. 
Yeah, you had a, a specific sort of line of cross-examination for the officer. Do you remember? Well, he had to rely on the ASD result in order to, to issue that ticket. And without the ASD result, he would not have issued that ticket. Yes, and he agreed to that in cross-examination. He said, yeah, I issued that ticket based on the result of the ASD. Now, that's obviously a problem. Well, it's a problem because it's inadmissible for the purpose of that ticket. Yes. There's a BC Supreme Court decision called Regina and Schultz, also a Supreme Court of Canada decision called Regina and Orbanski, Regina and Elias, and a BC Court of Appeal decision called Regina and Visser. So if you'd like it at every level of court. It's, it's, it's trite <laughs> law. Like, yeah. it's not, it's, there's nothing magical about that. It's just that it hadn't been applied in those circumstances and nobody had ever thought to argue it in that drive contrary to restriction circumstance before. Yeah, and the the judicial justice. So I was clever. Yes. But it was something that had been on my mind Very. for a long time. It was just a day of, finally, I had the, that ticket. Today is the day of reckoning. Yeah. No right. more shall twenty five fifteen tickets be issued on the basis of an ASD. Well, that was my feeling. Yes. Yeah, and was it the day of reckoning? Well, it was the day of reckoning in the sense that I, I mean, even the police officers were very concerned about it and thought that, oh, we're not going to succeed as a result of this. And then the JJP put it over for a decision, and the decision came back, and he said, um, okay, yeah, I agree with Mr. Doroshenko's point, but the police officer could still issue it because of this. Yeah, he had three factors. Was, yeah. The first was that your client had an odor of liquor on his breath. Mm, that's not good enough. That's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Secondly, his passengers appeared to be intoxicated. That's proof by association. Guilt by association is ridiculous. Guilt by association. And thirdly, then this was the one that like really irked me out of all of them the most. The third one was that he never made any statements to the officer when he was being issued the ticket. No exculpatory statements about the presence of an odor of liquor on his breath or the presence of alcohol in his body, as the JP said, as one would expect a person to do in Eat. such circumstances. Eat. Like, I'm sorry, but in what world is your failure to protest your innocence now a factor that can be used to substantiate your conviction? Well, it's not something in Canadian law. So, yeah. I'm, I mean, we looked at it and we knew that it was wrong. Um, I was concerned that the first one might have been something that the court on appeal would the odor of gravitate liquor. to the odor of liquor. Yes, and but that's really of, what it came down to. The problem of o the odor of liquor, I mean, as any police officer will tell you, all they get from an odor of liquor is a reasonable suspicion that you've got alcohol in your body. They can't conclude even on a balance of probabilities that you've got alcohol in your body because it's a it's a one of those things. That, I mean, I was standing in line behind somebody the other day, and I thought, oh, this, this guy's been drinking, and he turned around and he was breathing at me. I couldn't say that it was he had odor, liquor in his body. I mean, I suspected it. I suspected it well enough that if I was a police officer, I'd probably want to, you know, when he was driving, I'd want to smell his breath and make an ASD demand. But the um, it, it doesn't tell you anything, really. I mean, it's just it gives you a suspicion, and that's it. Yeah. And so that was the argument. I did the appeal for you. Um, I don't, For still me. don't know why. Yeah. Because you wanted you, to. You were more angry than me. You were willing. Well, you yeah, said yeah, you'd I do it. I always get angry. You know me. I never back away from a fight. <laughs> Or an appeal. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. I just, uh, it was your client. I don't know. I thought you would be wanting to do it. It was a good argument. 
I knew it was wrong. It isn't that there's decisions that I've had that were wrong that I didn't necessarily appeal. I couldn't persuade the client to appeal them. I couldn't, you know, for whatever reason, didn't appeal them. Well, fair enough. I like to fix the law when the law is not good. So that's what we did. Well, that's nice of you that you feel that way. Well, it's my obligation. To fix the law? If it's bad, yeah. Your obligation is to do the best for your client. Yeah, and that includes fixing the law because it's not just my client that day that's going to be affected by the bad decision. It's also every future client and everybody else's client. It's like a complete access to justice issue for me. Well, I I had one really good case that was um, overturned or sort of later on. Judges went the other direction from it a long time ago. And my case was right. Um, and it was following, it was a case uh, decided by Judge Yee, and it was following a decision uh, by Kerry Smith and a BC Supreme Court case. And ultimately, judges started going the other direction because they didn't realize about the BC Supreme Court case. And now it's just sort of trite law gone all wrong. And I don't think that, I don't, I don't have this belief that that the law evolves in a way that is necessarily logical or sane. I'm, you know, Beverly McLaughlin's not on your show, so she and I would probably disagree on that. Um, I don't think it's necessarily smart, sane, useful. I just think that it develops one way or another, and that's the way it goes. Well, interesting that you would say that you don't think the law necessarily evolves in a smart, sane, or useful way, because I was talking about my argument that I made in this appeal that you can't rely on an odor of liquor to issue the ticket with some very senior Vancouver Police Department sergeants um, in the traffic section who are probably listening to this podcast and know who they are. Um, and uh, they were telling me that they're concerned about what would happen if I succeeded on that argument because absent an ASD, what else can they rely on to conclude that there's alcohol in a person's body such that they're guilty of the offense? I'm not going to lay out all the ways I think that they could do it, but I don't think they need to issue that ticket. They can give a 12 or 24-hour driving prohibition on the basis of the ASD and forget yes. the drive contrary to restriction. Yes. It's unnecessary. It's redundant most of the time. Yes. Um, and, uh, and you don't need to do it. Yes, so. I would agree with that. Um, you're also, if you're issuing a 12 or a 24 hour, likely triggering further consequences for the driver. So who cares about the three points? Um, I was very intrigued by the Crown's argument at the hearing of this, um, which was essentially that you can rely on the presence of alcohol on somebody's breath as proof beyond a reasonable doubt that there's alcohol in the body. And they had a case from Ontario where the court actually took judicial notice of the fact that having alcohol on your breath uh, was um, was proof that there was alcohol in your body. Yeah, how can you say beyond a reasonable doubt? You might be able to raise yourself from a reasonable suspicion to a balance of probabilities, but how do you raise that to a reasonable doubt? I don't think you can. Well, it isn't by buttressing your conclusion on the basis of inadmissible evidence and or um, complete legal errors. Well, so you won. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm feeling very happy about that. Do you have the decision? I've ordered a copy of the reasons. Do you have, do you know the reasons? Do you yes. know why you won? Yes. 
Why did you win? Oh, the judge said um, an odor of liquor on the breath gives you a reasonable suspicion of alcohol in the body. It does not equate to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Oh, okay. So well, I won for so the, that was your you know, argument. the reason yeah. that I thought I would win for. Well, another feather in your cap, Kyla Lee. Yes, and acquittal entered. No need for a rehearing, so that's good. So, traffic court. Well, we go to traffic court a lot, and we've started a project in traffic court. Uh, it's actually starting tomorrow, where the next two months we've got dates um, where both um, our office, Acumen Law Corporation, and Philco Law are both going to be providing people uh, available in traffic court to do a little bit of um, duty counsel, just to give legal aid, give advice to um, people who are going into traffic court. And you can find the schedule for it on the BC Driving Lawyers website. bcdrivinglawyers.com. Yeah. Um, and uh, it'll tell you uh, where we're going to be and when. And we will be there in courthouses uh, available to talk to people about traffic tickets. This was Kyla's idea. She came up with it. Um, it was one of those things that we've wanted to do for a long time. We've given lots of free legal advice in courthouses over the years to people who are uh, dealing with traffic tickets. And we know that not everybody's um, got the um, the wherewithal or the or the you know personal motivation at that moment to pick up the phone and call a lawyer. Some people are terrified of calling a lawyer. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you don't want to call us, you can actually just look up uh, the time and uh, date where a lawyer is going to be in the courthouse. It's uh, all in the Lower Mainland. We're doing it for two months starting on Friday, so starting the day of this podcast, the 14th and on, um, and um, until August 16th. We will be at Robson Square Court on Friday. Hopefully this is released in the morning because we'll be there Friday afternoon. Yeah, beginning. from one o'clock until people, you know, we run out of people, I guess, to talk to. Yeah. There's lots of times I've talked to people in traffic court and I've spent a, like an hour in traffic court after I'm done with my matter talking to everybody else who's there. And there's a lot of people who have real misconceptions about traffic court. Uh, people who think that, um, the, that they, <laughs> the court doesn't, the idea of precedent is lost on some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, how the functioning of the court is going to be. Your trial is going to be at the end. All the pleas are going to be at the beginning. You know, people are, people are confused about how these things play out. So we've decided that we're going to just do our part and, and do our best to explain it to people because it's more and more people going to traffic court these days. Uh, Especially it, with the increased consequences to tickets. Yeah, and um, the reality is that... Uh, you know, People would be better equipped a lot of the time to get lawyers. We do traffic court things for very inexpensive fees, but the um, people would be better equipped to have a lawyer, but if they are in a circumstance where they're not up to doing that, they can come and talk to us. Yes. Um, There are a few limitations on what we're going to be doing. We're not going to actually represent you in court. So no, we're run, not running trials not or running, entering pleas trial or anything or like that. Your plea or make your submissions on your guilty plea. Um, we won't negotiate with the police officer for you, but we will give you advice about um, what the elements are of the charge that you're facing. We'll listen to you, tell your story, talk to you about your available defenses based on what you tell us, give you some tips on what to do when you go into the courtroom, and just generally keep you informed about the process so that you know what you're getting into. So come and see us, find the schedule, and uh, let people know about what we're doing because we want to make sure that as many people help uh, themselves to this access to justice initiative that we're trying to start. Yes. 
And if you would like to just contact us, you can give us a call at Vancouver office, 604-685-8889. Our website is vancouvercriminallaw.com. The BC Driving Lawyers website is bcdrivinglawyers.com, and you can go there to the blog and you'll find the uh, post explaining, giving the schedule of where we're going to be and where the uh, people will be from Philco's, uh, Kevin Philco's office. Um, and uh, it won't just be me and Kyla. It'll be a number of uh, people from court, but they're all people who have got significant experience in traffic court. So lawyers and articled students who uh, go to traffic court all the time. All right, and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.